piece is the great epic novel. In other words, it's widely accepted that uh, the epic is a form suited to ancient archaic peoples. All right, I mean, there's a, a shifting of gears between from the oral epic, like Gilgamesh or Homer, and written epics like the later Homeric tradition and something like Virgil's Aeneid. On the other hand, in the archaic world, something like an epic story comes up because it's a way of organizing people's understanding of themselves and their community. So it turns out that the hero of the Greek epic is not Chinese or Aztec. He's a Greek. <laughs> he turns out to be just like us, except that he's really great. Why? Because that's what's required for a hero. Now, if you go anyplace else and you ask about, it, about an archaic people, and if they, usually they do have an epic, um, it will always be one of them, an exemplary one, which is what makes it heroic. And uh, there's always, or well, at least, yeah, I think I can generalize it. Certainly for the, it's true for the West, but it may be true for a big chunk of the uh, literature in the world. The journey motif is what holds things together. You know, with the possible exception, say, of something like Proust's, uh, Proust, P-R-O-U-S-T, he wrote a very long, excruciatingly detailed uh, novel called Remembrance of Things Past, seven volumes. And it all happens in the space of him eating a madeleine. Right. So, so he's having tea and a cookie. And he, at the beginning, and he's still having it, just putting it in his mouth, but the reverie covers, covers seven volumes. <laughs> so uh, it's a great it's... classic. I myself um, was close to jumping out of the window. I couldn't get beyond three, uh, three volumes. Three volumes, because I just said no. How no, no, no. It was just so horrible. This is not, this is what's, I mean, yeah. it's claustrophobic. That's why epics, and maybe liter literature more generally, involves a change of location. Where is he from? Was he French if he was eating a Madeleine? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, turn of the century. Right. Uh, not this century, the one before. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's exquisitely detailed, but it made me want to, I mean, <laughs> please beg him to stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's not that it isn't beautifully written. It is beautifully written, but it's so excessive that uh, you know I found it very hard. I'm sure that he was interesting at parties. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I am as well. Right. Um, let me think. Last party I remember joining was the Whig party. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. I wouldn't enough, be so. surprised. Yeah, we know, right. I mean, with, with the point that I'm at in the book right now, we're at um, book four out of 11. Uh -huh. So um, Pierre's wife just left him because uh, she The was, beautiful Elaine. Yeah, uh, she left him because um, he fought a duel about her cheating with this other man. Tukmakov. Uh, I think it was Dolokhov or something Dolohov, like that. right, yeah. sorry, Dolohov. Dolohov, yeah. And he then, was my favorite guy in the book. Really? I'm the Dolohov, or I was when I read that. Last time I read this was, I was 20 years old. 
I'm serious. I know. Um, and uh, when I and I had a friend, Ollie, who was taking the same class with Herman Seneco. This would be Ollie Pergams, and he's a professor now too. It's what University of Chicago churns out. And uh, we both read War and Peace in that class. And I happened to ask him one day while we were having coffee together in the basement of uh, Cobb Hall, um, who do you identify in this with in this whole blasted, gigantic menagerie? And he immediately said, Dolohov. And I said, yeah, I do too. That's messed up. Well, you're not Dolohov now. No, no. no. See, <laughs> the problem is that used to be interesting. Yeah. Well. But the problem is you have no busy business getting married and starting a family if you want to be interesting. That is true. Um, if, you know, that you can do that with a certain part of your life, mm -hmm. but then you have to reel in the being interesting and entertaining yourself and start looking out for the welfare of other people. And, uh, yeah. And strangely enough, though, here's what's funny about Dolohov. What are we going to find out about him? He has a soft spot. For his mom and his For his, his sister. mother and his hunchbacks. Yeah, sister. I saw that. Well, yeah. somehow doesn't that work for Dolohov? I Dolo? know, cause... Well, isn't that true of people in general? Yeah. The messed up stuff people manage to aggregate into oneself. Because he acts all tough and then he gets shot in the side and goes, don't tell my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and he, remember, he cheats uh, Pierre out of a big sum of money. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's very clear from the way it's described that uh, poor Pierre hasn't the wit to realize that he's getting taken. Yeah, Pierre's an idiot. Well, yes... But he's also very, uh, very Christian. Really? Cause he, well, think of him. I mean, he tried to kill his wife with a marble slab. True enough. Fair enough. Um, he's subject to the same passions that everybody is. Mm -hmm. Right? And, uh, yeah, many people have felt provoked to violence, not to justify that they are. But, generally speaking... He's a decent and honest man, all right? Uh, whereas, think about the beautiful Elaine, right? Yes, who's, it's all... Yeah, it's all outward. Right, it's, it's all a front. Yes. And this is the funny thing, though, is where we're departing from, say, the outlook of Plato. There's the uh, uh, ladder of beauty, which your beloved is supposed to lead you upward, remember the, the symposium? And that's supposed to lead you to the ultimate good? Uh, Tolstoy says, nay, uh, much of what appears to be beautiful around you is in fact corrupt and it's not beautiful at all. Yeah, so she's that's, not why like such, that's why there's such irony around the beautiful Hélène. Everybody admits she's beautiful, but she has a poisonous character. Yeah, and then we have the inverse of that because towards the end of the chapter, it's. Um Prince Andre's wife dies in childbirth, but she's this um, very excellent soul. Again, uh, Tolstoy himself is a committed Christian of a non-denominational sense. He's a radical pacifist and a lot of other stuff, but he has a big enough soul that he can describe the whole world from God's eye view, and it, it never seems strange. Um, instead, he weaves together the strange plaid, which is re which reality is actually made of. I mean, it includes every color in the spectrum, plus a couple of colors off on both sides of the spectrum. You can't, 
he can't even see, but God sees the whole pattern. Uh, what he you know, and uh, what you get is um, God's equanimity. And yes, there's good and evil in the world. It's a very complicated pattern, but uh, nobody but God understands it. That's why he really takes historians to task. He says most of you guys write bullshit. And that's because you get fed bullshit because you get your people away from the actual experience. The closer you get to people actually being there, rather than allowing people to talk to themselves and other people to talk to them and convince them about what they saw, <laughs> so that actually is the only way to find out what went on. And uh, there are two epilogues to it. And the second epilogue is about power. And he says, we don't know what power is. Power, I mean, we're, all, we're all pursuing it, just no one knows what it is. And he takes that to be actually the hand of God moving people like Napoleon around the world, like, like a chess piece. So power is how much action, action as a chess piece do you get? That's right. Right. And you think, that, wow, I can fly. <laughs> no, that would be the, uh, the invisible uh, strings, strings yeah. of the fabric. <laughs> Nobody flies on their own. You got you to be riding one of those. Um, the people created, like Prince Andre, is going to die at Borodino. And, I mean, at 20, I thought, how queerly, queer and funny, strange, his description of death is. Because, look, no matter how... Uh, Empathetic you are. When it comes to death, there's nobody to empathize with, right? So, how does an artist, and this shows how great Tolstoy really is, describe Prince Andre dying on the battlefield? He's wounded, he's got some gaping, kind of bloody, you know, it looks like the beginning of. Uh, oh, is he going back to war then? Because he just came out of it. Right, of course he is. Oh. This is the Napoleonic Wars, war and peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, notice, we move seamlessly from the battlefield to St. Petersburg to Moscow. <laughs> Why? Because the narrator is equally at all of those locations at any given time. <laughs> all right? That's the, I mean, in other words, you have to work that out after you've been reading this thing. You ever notice that this narrator never makes a mistake? And never simply reports other people's mistakes. He just tells the truth and says, he was mistaken in that way, and he was mistaken in that way, and this is mistaken in the other way, but everything I tell you is exactly on. Um, one of the weird things about War and Peace is that it has an ending, but it doesn't have a conclusion. <laughs> I mean, how can you end this thing? And that goes back, strangely enough, to the problem that we saw when we first studied epics with Gilgamesh and the Iliad and the Odyssey, we couldn't figure out how to end the damn things, right? There's always a book or two. Well, let me talk about three, four, five, six other things that happened that I just have to tag on here, right? They don't know how to end it. And the same thing is true for war and peace. Since human history is continuous, still going on, I mean, I'm glad he didn't tell us about Armageddon and the end of the world. It's what, good enough that he told us what, how Prince Andre felt when he died. And it's funny because there's a powerful note of truth in it. 
Um, I know that because of my own uh, medical difficulties. But Prince Ali was thinking of himself, he says, oh, I'm dying. And I mean, you would expect agonizing, writhing pain, and maybe there is that, but what's going on in his psyche just doesn't connect to it. And uh, then he says to himself, how can I die? Since everybody likes me so much. <laughs> I mean, I remember the line 45 years later. I mean, I like Dolohov. He's the wild card in the deck. Wherever he goes, he fucks things up. <laughs> no yeah, he tied a policeman to a bear and sent it into a river. <laughs> and you don't like this guy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I do. I, I don't think that I have very strong opinions on almost anyone here, except he for Ellen. Friend. I think she's a piece of shit. Well, she is, yeah. Yeah. How often are the photo beauties pieces of shit? I mean, Tolstoy's onto something. Mm -hmm. There's something about being, you know, sucked up to because you're that, you know, you're model beautiful that makes you have a fucked up relationship with people. shame that he hasn't written a dog into the story yet. Well, you see, that's one of the great things about Homer, right? Yeah. Back in the Odyssey, <laughs> the dog says, oh, I see the, the, the scar. <clears throat> Keels over and dies. Now, only a dog person would write that. There's no need for it. Alright, you didn't have to have that dog. Yeah, it's been, it's been waiting for ten years. Here it comes. It was a philosophical dog. It's been waiting twenty years. Oh. Remember? Identify with them. You put your snout into socks as well? I do, yes, but yeah, only conceptually. Yeah. <laughs> right. I get the world, I get a very large stocking, and I wonder, hmm, what's at the bottom of this? And uh, I don't know what I found, you know. Yeah, your memoir can be <laughs> putting my snout into God's stocking. <laughs> or I could call it from Meister Eckhart, who's my favorite mystic, and there's a lecture on him, you would like him. Um, I have not heard God's voice, but I have heard God clear his throat as if to announce his presence without speaking. Now, that, when I read that, made the little hairs on the back of my neck stand up some wonderful focus, right? And the answer was, uh, in a million years, I could not have thought that up, but that is exactly the right metaphor. I mean, I, I kind of distrust people who say God talks to me directly because I think that they're sort of crazy. Whereas if God sort of <laughs> somehow reveals his presence, well, that I can believe, uh, you know, a little easier. That for me is what the Grand Canyon is about. I mean, I can talk to you all about my skeptical thoughts, except when I go there, and then all right. It reschedules and recalibrates what you mean by big and little. You go there thinking big is me. Nobody leaves there thinking that. And for me, I mean, that's natural theodicy. I don't want to hear anything about, you know, five proofs of God's existence. No, St. Thomas can keep that. Uh, 
for me, if you want to center yourself and you want to understand where you really figure out in the universe, go to the Grand Canyon. I mean, I hiked it, you know, but that was a long time ago, and uh, with a friend of mine. And uh, at night, you can look out and see the stars because there's not much light pollution and the air is very clear. And uh, you realize, well, how you relate to the Grand Canyon, which is <laughs> laughable in terms of the of how vast the difference is. But then you realize there's a greater dis difference still between the Grand Canyon and the stars. <laughs> and that gives you some sense of where you really stand. And it really tends to calm me down and say, well, all right, how important can I really be? You know? There's not much to get excited over once you see that. Well, it tells you where you really are. Mm -hmm. You know, and, but it's the kind of thing that you can't do by thinking about it or by looking at a picture on a screen. You actually have to go there. You have to change your physical location and go to look at the biggest hole in the ground in the world. Is it actually the biggest? Uh, I, I, if it isn't... Um, I don't, I mean... I mean, there must be, like, a meteor crater or something, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 this is much bigger than any meteor. Okay. It's more than a mile deep, honey. <laughs> Stop and think about how... I know, I know. I'm thinking. All right. So, you can look down the various strata, and, you know, dinosaurs are fairly close to the top, and you think, holy good lord, look at this thing. And this is just, I mean, it's cut into the earth using God's pinky. Okay, and you have to step back and say, okay, well, that, that's a new, that's a new meaning for big. Yeah, it's like God's pinky was scraping icing off of a cake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, but the scale of it has to provoke awe. At least it does in me. I can't do, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that were, okay, <laughs> you know, you got me here. Uh, it's literally an, an awesome experience.